As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome. Uh, Wednesday already, and uh, Afi and I were just discussing, um, sometimes around International Women's Day, um, we get asked to do stuff. It's quite weird. And um, it can mean, for those of us in this, let's be honest, slightly niche line of work, it can mean rather a busy week around International Women's Day. And so it's proving here, let me tell you. Uh, Fee's out tonight, empowering. I'm out tomorrow, empowering. And then we're both empowering. On stage on, on Friday night. Yeah, we should have mentioned it on the show, shouldn't we? Anyway, uh, we're at the Women of the World Festival Friday evening. And then the best of that will be put out actually by Times Radio as a podcast. So, And if you'd like to come and see us, it's at the Royal Festival Hall and yes. you'll be very well. Welcome, come say hello afterwards. 7.30 start, tickets at relatively moderate prices and we are going to be joined by Mira Sial, so a little bit of quality involved. Yeah, she'll perk us up, won't she? Yes, definitely. As we get to the end of our women week. <laughs> a week just full of women! <laughs> um, right, more power to them, she said hastily. Now, um, a couple of people complaining about jingles. Um, I have been told that, yes, change is on the way. Now, none of us like change but their changes for the better. I'm reliably informed. So it's the it's the theme tune, isn't it, that seems to get quite a lot of people's yeah. goats. And also the fact that one of the trails that we did way back when we joined the station, which seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Yeah, I was only, oh, I was barely, was I 58? I think you were 58. Just 58. Oh, I was just yeah. 53. <laughs> um, we recorded lots of, uh, you know, teasers to wrap around the podcast, and they do sound a bit old by now. Uh, so I completely agree with you, whoever was complaining about the Hey Live thing. It grates in my ears too. Uh, so all of those things are going to be refreshed and changed. Yeah. So stop complaining, basically. <laughs> just shut up. <laughs> yeah, we don't need any of those complaints. Uh, this one uh, comes in from... Angie, I think, probably. Uh, Hello, Jane and Fee. I mm -mm, hope you read this out. The fashion fault wasn't with you two, but with the seemingly... Uh, I don't want to say untalented stylists, no. actually, because they were very nice they people. They were very lovely. And um, this is about the um, never-to-be-forgotten, once-seen, never-to-be-forgotten fashion shoot that was in the Sunday Times Style Mag last week. Uh, so whoever it is, our correspondent, uh, just says, uh, shame on the paper for not showing more respect to their greatest assets. Well, that's not true. Had you been dressed by Gok Wan... A classic style may have appeared, which you both would have loved too. As for the ridiculous bikes, well, uh, yeah, we didn't go anywhere on the bikes. And I think the bikes were chosen uh, because of their lurid colours, which yeah. uh, seemed to accentuate. Is that a fashion term? Accentuate the dresses that we were wearing. But I know that lots of people had very mixed opinions about those photographs. And having said that, we weren't going to refer to them. I think we refer to them quite Enough yes. for now. But I would refer everybody to the very sensible gentleman who emailed yesterday uh, pointing out that it was satire. 
and we were, <laughs> yes, we were very going, grateful. I think you're was, right. We're yeah. going with that. We are we? going. We, that's the decision we made. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'd be very keen to help Gabby if we possibly can. I think this is a probably it's going to be a stretch. This one, Gabby, but we'll try. Uh, dear Jane and Fee, you've kept me buoyant through lockdown as a disorientated new mum with postnatal and emergency C-section, breastfeeding agony, and no support. You waffled at me through many close to sleepless nights while my small cluster fed once for eight hours straight. My children probably know your voices as well as my own, but I'm about to relocate. Now, this is to a place in Belgium. I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's spelt M-E-C-H-E-L-E-N. Mechelen? Should we do some alternatives? Mechelen? Mechelen. Yes. Mechelen. Yeah, that is more likely. I think the first one sounded more likely. Um, it's p- as part of your new and hopefully profitable matchmaking initiative. Would you ask your listeners, it, does anybody live there? Does anybody that I might like live there, basically? They'll be the only people I want to associate with, and I'm really scared of being lonely. About me, I'm five foot, although by evening, 4'11". Uh, good sense of humour, cat person, can speak Dutch but not fluently. Hook, I'll be importing my own tea. Right, okay. This is a shout out then to anybody living anywhere near the place we've decided is pronounced Mechelen in Belgium. Gabby is moving there and she needs like minded friends. So if that could be you or it could be somebody you know, please do email. And if you then go on to meet, make sure it's in a public place and please let someone know that you're going. I already feel nervous trying to arrange dates for... It's not dates. She just needs she needs someone she just company. to chum up with. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think quite a few of our listeners have been very taken with the suggestion that we could have a an off-air married couples evening or just couples evening where everybody brought along a single friend who did want to meet somebody. Yeah. So that might well take off. I think there's a commercial glint in the eye going on about that somewhere. What would you somewhere. call it? Uh, three's company. I guess. No. Uh, three's a crowd. Get off. Uh. <laughs> get off. I mean, I haven't heard that expression now since the late eight or no, the mid eighties. <laughs> was was that it. was that the preferred term in Hampshire? Yes, it was. Very <laughs> so in Liverpool, you used to say cop off. Okay. Yeah. I rather like it. Yeah. Did you get off with them? Did you cop off? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, Lordy. Okay, this is an anonymous one. And it is critical of uh, something that I said, and I want to do this justice. Uh, Dear Jane and Fee, I've thought long and hard about whether I should raise this with you, not least because I feel you are both reflective and self-deprecating human beings. And let's face it, there doesn't seem to be much of that about at the moment. Anyway, I listened with interest to your discussion about the societal culture around George Michael, and I agreed with most of your observations. However, as a mother of a 16-year-old gay child, I sat back when I heard Fee use the words lifestyle choice. Choices within the context of George Michael's sexuality. I hate to pick you up on this fee because you're obviously a kind and thoughtful and compassionate in your journalism, but I have to challenge this much misused phrase. So you're absolutely right to do that. I would only try and make the defence. Jane and I have been talking about uh, this George Michael documentary mm. and I was trying very hard on air not to say something a little bit too graphic about the offences that he was then arrested for which were a choice of his to make, if you see what I mean, because I completely get your point uh, that homosexuality is not some kind of lifestyle choice that you make. It was more talking about the kind of things that George 
then did, which were outed in the most terrible way by the newspapers. So that's my only caveat. But absolutely, I agree with the criticism and I take it on board. And I would hate your son uh, to be listening to any kind of conversation that implied that he had a choice in who he was because his identity is obviously incredibly important and authentic and it is the right thing for him. So I get all of those things. Uh, So I'm sorry if any offence was caused. I didn't mean that at all. No, I I, I think everybody will know that you didn't mean that. But um, we're always grateful to you for just picking out things that we've said that perhaps you didn't, I don't know, the cut of the jib of it you didn't like or whatever it might be. I, I was having a conversation with my daughter the other day about the term queer because i i know that people nowadays are very happy to to absolutely embrace that term but i was trying to tell her that i think it might have been in connection with the george michael documentary that i do struggle with that because it it reminds me of a terrible time when when i was growing up when it was just the most damning and unpleasant insult that because it implied that you were odd yes it's an othering term it's a real othering term and i know it's now been completely adopted by that community and good luck to them and all the rest of it but i as i as me i still i do associate it with a dark time Mm. i have to say and i do so i wouldn't ever i don't know i'm just not i was like slightly cringe but that is a generational thing i think uh, you've seen the George Michael documentary. Have you watched both of yes, them? Yes, I've, I've seen both of them now. It's, if I'm honest, um, it probably could have been one documentary. Okay, <laughs> I'm quite sure what the second episode brought to me. And I think his case is so interesting. And this is what we were talking about on air: just how quickly times have changed so much for the better, and the terrible pressure that artists were put under. I mean, Elton John was in the same yeah, yeah. kind of place, wasn't he? Where he was made to try that was much earlier, of to course. pretend in public something that he wasn't in private. But do, when you watch it, I haven't seen it, do you have that sense of it's a kind of, you know, it's almost a historical thing we're talking about now? Does it seem like a long time ago? It, it, um, it sort of does in some ways and it doesn't in others. And actually I was quite struck by George Michael completely owned everything so he he made a lot of very public appearances he did an interview on cnn um he did what struck me as a very very frank and open interview with i think either michael parkinson or michael aspel in those days you had to be a bloke called michael to have a chat show um in britain and actually there are still no chat shows with women are there hosting anyway um on tv and michael mcintyre did a a chat show, didn't he? So maybe that legacy lives on. Oh yes, that's very true. Yeah. yeah. And John Bishop also has a chat show, although he's called John, so he's something of an outlier. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. But it was interesting because that they he did talk. Um, he actually used the term masturbation, which I don't remember anybody ever saying on a chat show, a very middle of the road mainstream chat show. But George Michael went on and talked about it. So, um, I mean, it, in many ways, it's um, perhaps I'm now contradicting myself. I said the second half wasn't worth watching. Um, perhaps it was. I think we should all yeah. watch it. Yeah. It sounds great. Uh, it will absolutely amaze um, young people growing up today to think that that's what happened. Because the idea that now a male popular crooner would lose any kind of, well, sales, for example by admitting in speech marks that they were gay, it's laughable. Yes, 
So we are living in better times. We are living in better so times. So if you just think about Harry Styles, who did, uh, he does quite a lot of uh, coming out shout outs, doesn't he? It's a thing at his concerts. Completely embraces the whole thing. And yep. he, he uh, I love the fact that Harry just will not, he, he won't really commit to anything. He does what he likes, goes out with who he likes, wears what he likes. He's styled in a really clever way. Um, with lots of kind of what you might call back in the day feminine frilly touches, um, and I like I really and I love his music. I love his, you know, the kind of dungaree romper suit that he yes. has coined as I'm his not own. As keen on that, <laughs> no, it has shades of rainbow for me. Really, you, you do have to be my age to appreciate what that means. I really like it. I mean, I don't think okay. I, you and I wouldn't be able to sport them ourselves because we would look like we were just about to attend something that's probably called monkey music. But uh, yeah, I like I, I like that. I think that's a practical outfit for a gig. Now I have. <laughs> I'm just moving on. I have offended podiatrists. Oh, not, you have. Not my intention. Not my intention. Um, this is from Kate Harrison, podiatrist. Thank you for emailing, Kate. I, I wanted to email in following Jane's flippant comment about a pam- pamphlet entitled My Life as a Podiatrist. This pamphlet needs to be in every career advisor's arsenal as there's a national shortage of podiatrists. We desperately need people to consider it as a career. In fact, says Kate, I'm going to a careers fair at a local secondary school tomorrow evening to help spread the word. Now, I think that might be tonight, in fact. So, Kate, I hope it goes well. Um, I came to podiatry via a short teaching career when I decided that rather than dealing with teenagers for the rest of my working life, I'd rather work with feet. That was 28 years ago, and I've had the most fulfilling and satisfying career ever since. Part of the problem is that podiatrists have a rather unglamorous image. We're still perceived as spending our days cutting old ladies' toenails. However, podiatrists are specialists of the lower limb. We assess treat and diagnose sorry we assess diagnose and treat a whole range of issues from the hip down and there's room to specialize in a whole host of areas sports podiatry gait analysis dermatology diabetic care minor surgery etc i'd be so grateful if you could read this email it might just reach a young person or a young person's parent who is currently thinking about their future career it is national careers week after all Please don't forget to encourage them to explore podiatry as an option. Uh, Kate, thank you. You've well and truly put me in the picture there. And uh, I now know much more about the potential uh, for a career as a podiatrist. I think we should get Kate on Inside Job to tell us a little bit more. Good idea. Because I bet that people tell her loads and loads of things while she is attending to the lower limbs. I think they probably do. And I have to say, it's a it's a sort of regular highlight of my parents' social life. They don't go to a podiatrist, they do go to the chiropodist. And they always sing its praises afterwards. Tea and biscuits, proper chat. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an event. So it is absolutely, I was going to say not to be sniffed at, but you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's a very important thing. Not to be sniffed at. Please wear a mask. Uh, Rachel says, and don't worry, we'll get to our big interview in just a couple of moments' time. It was with one of... Do you know what? I was so thrilled to meet her. One of my all-time favourite writers, Donna Leon, Donna, today. She didn't disappoint. She was a she? brilliant woman. No, uh, let me just do Rachel's email, though, because it might start a lovely chain, uh, that and finding companions in Belgium. Uh, Rachel says, Greetings, you acerbic, uh, hilarious ladies. You're a constant source of pleasure. As I potter on my plot at Victory Gardens allotments in Rawdon, Leeds, even when the temperature is hovering at zero, men sheds have always been a thing, haven't they? I'm sure, Jane, 
saying you must have addressed this subject in the Hour of Woman in the past. We did. So why not share the delight... We've moved on now. So why not share the delights of my shed, the place where you accompany me, pics attached to make you feel at home? Makes me very jealous. I'd love a shed. Well, do you want to do some... Use your descriptive powers. Did you ever have to do this in radio training? Um, I didn't do formal radio training. Oh, well, here's your I opportunity. I didn't get on the course. Here's your opportunity. So in 30 seconds, could you describe the second image there to give the listener a full and rounded and 3D picture of the shed? I would say uh, this is less shed, uh, more welcoming lady nest. There's a lovely wicker chair... There's the hint of some fabric. There are things hanging on the walls. Uh, I think there's a kettle on a hob. Uh, there's a book. And what else? What else has she got in there? Well, um, she's got a I description. Got a wool rug. Um, actually, her late mother's wicker armchair. That's very, very sweet. And she's got wine glasses, biscuits, yeah. Monty Don's book, uh, and Anna Karenin as well. Uh, and I think it's a very good idea to share images of women's sheds or just women's spaces because for a long time, you know, men have the man cave thing going on, don't they? A place where they need to go to find some sanctuary, some calm away from the domestic bustle. And I think an awful lot of women might be like me where sometimes I just shut myself in a laundry cupboard. But invariably, I'm still doing chores. You know, it's not a place of sanctuary. So I admire Rachel enormously for having created her own place and space yeah i'd like more pictures of those kind of things please. yes send us your hideaways that the man of the house knows nothing about yep or you could send us a picture i love um you know some some men have what do they call them what do they call them men have um in the house not studies but is it snug what would be the term men dens dens yeah, yeah. probably a den den, yep. den. derek's got a den yeah. I always 63. want to say of iniquity after the word den. Uh, so, yes, female spaces would be very good. Uh, anybody who knows anybody in Belgium would be great too. Uh, Belgium's little... not very big, so you might know someone somewhere who could become a friend of, of Gabby who's going there. Maybe just over the border. Yes. Yep. Actually, because Donna Leon told me before we started the interview that uh, she now lives very close to the Italian border in Switzerland. It sounded gorgeous. And she can sometimes, if she fancies it, walk just walk to Italy for a coffee. I mean, how cool is that? Sounds lovely. Yeah. I can walk to Pret for a coffee, but it's not the same thing, is it? Mm. I was, you know, I was at Little this morning before it opened. Were you standing there knocking on the door? <laughs> I, was, it was I just got my timings wrong. I didn't have any bread. I really wanted toast. So I had to, I had to scoot down to the shops. And I just, I arrived at five to eight. And there's a sort of cute, it's quite, it's a dispiriting thing to wait for a supermarket to open. And do you chat? Or does no, everyone just... everyone just sat pretending because <laughs> yeah. it was an in, in one of those inside shopping centers. We all sat pretending we weren't waiting for Littles to open little to it but we, we all were that's why we were there because the weather was a bit inclement this morning it wasn't like it wasn't the greatest outing of my life but i got two loaves one to eat and one is an emergency freezer loaf so you won't have to do that again no exactly do you know what? i really admire you because if i was that hungry in the morning i'd just eat something else you know i'd just i'd get out of punjabi samosa and have done with that jane <laughs> no. crime novelist donna leon didn't start her detective novels featuring here we go Commissario Brunetti, 
Until she was nearly 50, she's gone on to pen 32 of the books, selling more than 7.5 million copies in 35 languages. Her success lies in the kindness and the decency of her main character, as well as in the backdrop of Venice, the city that all of her books are set in, and the way she combs through its streets and canals for stories of corruption and power and greed and hubris, always allowing Brunetti to sink back into the loving embrace of his family and food. Can you tell I'm reading this? She was our big <laughs> guest today. We began by asking her about the original story at the opera that led to the creation of Brunetti. I was at the opera, at the rehearsal of an opera being conducted by a friend of mine, Gabriele Ferro. This is 35 years ago at least. And somehow the name of another conductor came up and we started speaking, of course, badly about another conductor. And someone posed the idea of what would happen if he died here? And we started, oh, what a good... And I thought, it'd be a great idea for a murder mystery. I wonder if I could make a chocolate mousse. There was as much curiosity. I just wanted to see if I could do it. Because I'd been reading them all my life. Just that I'd been eating chocolate all my life. And I, I sat down and I wrote a... I wrote a, a a novel, a crime novel, in which the opening scene is the discovery of the body of that conductor. You see, it's extraordinary that you use the term just. You know, I sat down and I wrote a novel because for so many people, A, that would seem like an almost impossible hill to climb, and B, the chocolate probably, mousse is harder. Do you think, <laughs> genuinely? <laughs> well, to someone who doesn't know how to cook, yeah, or someone who's never eaten one. In my case... I'd been nourished by chocolate mousse for the last who knows how many how many years. I was fifty when I started, so I'd re- I've read I had read hundreds of mysteries, and I thought, well, I just follow I follow the rules. I follow the path that other people have started, and that was it. And yeah. then what happened to that manuscript? Because it didn't immediately go to a publisher. No, no, no. Because I wanted to write it. I didn't want. I didn't care about it being published. A friend of mine nagged me into sending it to a contest, which happened to be in Japan, and it won. And then I got a contract, and then I got a contract for two books, and then it was four books, and then here I am, Yeah, 30 well, years later. With this astonishing success. Uh, did you ever uh, wonder whether or not you wanted to write a female protagonist, or immediately no, 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 in no. your head it was a man? No, no, because the, the scene is Italy, where male uh, priority is, is a visible phenomenon. And had, she be, had Brunetti been a woman, she would have spent a fair time of spare time, a lot of her time, explaining always, well, I'm just a woman, but still you have to answer my questions. The, the, the immediacy of power is, is there with a man, mm. and a woman doesn't have that. But you've created a very lovely man, huh? which I think is uh, one of the hugely appealing things in your yeah. writing. For people who haven't come across him yet, more fool them, really, Donna, but can you tell us a little bit more about him? Brunetti is a Venetian, Venetian doc. He's, his family is Venetian back, I don't know, hundreds of years. He's studied law. He has a, a degree in law. But he didn't want to practice law, so he became a he became a, a police person. He is married, and this was a, a, a bit of very clever uh, selection on my part. He's married to the daughter of one of the richest men in the city, who is also un conte. So the nobility and the money doesn't do Brunetti any immediate good, but it connects him to a whole strata of society that 
he wouldn't wouldn't be allowed into otherwise as a, a a lower class person because he is his family was very poor there were nobodies he has no rank he has no rank in the in the hierarchy that exists in venice but his wife does and so when he goes among people doing his job he's allowed sort of a giant step because he can step right in with them and be as tall as they are because his father-in-law is il conte So it's so clever because it allows him to be an observer, doesn't it? And to take the reader with him on those observations. And he can observe both sides. Anybody pretty much can invent or imagine the upper classes, but only someone like Brunetti can understand what the lower classes were like when he was growing up. And repeatedly in the books it's made clear that the, the family was desperately poor. So 32 books have been written. I know that you believe that you've made Brunetti darker as they go yeah, on. I think so. Is he at his darkest point yet in your most recent I don't know. One? I don't know because I, I, I'm working on a book now. It's, I guess it's number th- 33. And I'm more than 200 pages into the manuscript. And I, I don't have a clue. I don't know what's going to happen. Do you not? No. Ever not with any all. of them. Never. But I've I've heard you say that you tell when you're teaching creative writing, you you actually lie. You tell barefaced lies, and you tell the students they need to plan every single second. Now you're sitting here, having sold truckloads of. Oh, okay. Well, so okay. Donna, could you sorry. leave the? Could you read? The, just beat it, huh? <laughs> no, I think that for for novice writers, it is easier if they can think through the entire plot, and and have a beginning, a middle, and an mm. end. Because then they have a map. They know where to... If this is your first or your second book, you, you leave cookie crumbs. You know where to go. Because if you don't do that, there's just too much temptation for a, for a novice writer. Mm-hmm. But after you've written, say, ten of them, you know, you've learned where to step to the right, where to, and you know what character has what p- potential. In the beginning, you don't know that. So what... I think is wise to do is to examine the, the, the possibilities that open from each character. So you, ha- you have to make a plan for that. Mm. Can, can you just describe to us your first ever visit to Venice? As an American, as a young American woman, you arrive in what I, I haven't been myself, what I gather is the, the sensual bliss of Venice. Yeah, it is. What did it do to you? It zapped me. I was in my early 20s. I had finished university and I was, I, I suppose I was running away from having to be a grow up, grown up and get a job. So I went to Europe and as a tourist, I went to Venice and I had read about it. I had seen the Catherine Hepburn movie. I had seen documentaries such as they were. I'd seen National Geographic, a city on the blah, blah, blah. I stepped out of the train and walked down the steps of the, the train station and I said, oh my God, it's built on water. The streets of water, how can that be? Because the imagination, no matter how much exposure it has had, and of course in, in the late 60s one has had far, one had far less exposure to the reality of Venice, it cannot prepare a person for what, for what Venice is. And every step presented new beauty. I was there for a week, I think, and I, I was the equivalent of drunk on... Right. on, on on this, on these palazzi, these windows, these the streets. The truth, the truth, though, I suppose now is I'd be doing Venice a favour by never visiting. Wouldn't yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah, most people would. Yeah. But everybody wants to see it. But everybody wants to see the Dalai Lama and Ulaanbaatar, and, and, and we can't anymore. But I can't, I can't have a vote in this because mm. I profited from expo- sure. early exposure to and constant living in, in Venice. And so now when you go back there and you live mm-hmm. in Switzerland and go back to Venice kind of for a week at a time mm-hmm. here and there... What is your feeling every time you leave? Does it does it feel like home that's calling you back, or is there a sense this might be the last time I visit? No, 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 no. Because I know I will always want to go back. But at, I have to. All of us who who have left and go back, we we know when to go and when to stop going. So you stop going about now, and you can go back in October, because the thirty million who come. Most of them come in the summer. 30 million. Yes, 30, they estimate that it's 30 million a year, and there are fewer than 50,000 residents now. So where will Venice be in, say, 30, 40 years' time, do you I think? don't think it will be. I think that global warming will eliminate it. I think that the rising of the seas will eliminate it because it, it doesn't have to be under a metre or two or three or four or five of water. A half a metre will do because that will make, that will make life impossible. And tell us a little bit about the politics of current Venice and who it is who's fighting for that not to happen and why that fight isn't being won because it wouldn't only be global warming. I mean, it is about the tourism and the cruise yeah, ships. It's about everything. Yeah. The, the mayor, Brugnaro, he's, he's been in office about six years. His first act as mayor, if memory serves, was to order a search through the children's textbooks in the grammar school because there was uh, there were problems about what he called gander because in the textbooks boys could have little little boys or little girls could have two mothers or two fathers and that's not accord- that's not good according to the rules of what he called gander he was trying to talk about gender but he didn't know the word so he used gander this should give you an indication of the intellectual level <laughs> has this book been elected and he was re-elected. He was re-elected. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because he's the head of the junta that talks about we must limit the number of tourists who come to the city while doing everything legally possible to permit the arrival of more and more and more tourists. Mm. So it's same, same, same for, for Venice. It's, yeah. it's been badly governed for... Well, Italy's been badly governed for a couple. Well, and this may give us years. Yes, this may give us a clue as to why your books have been translated into every language on earth, uh, just about, with the exception of Italian. No, 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 no. No, they are not translated into Italian because I don't want to listen to the co- complaints and comments of people who don't read the books, but who read about the books, and resent and become angry at the foreigner, the person who is not Italian, who says these things about Italy. And if I were in their place, I'd probably do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because I can talk badly about my parents, but you can't. And I think that they would be justified. No Italian, either friends of mine or, or people that I meet, has ever commented in that way that I say bad things about Italy, because I don't. I like to think that... My love, my adoration for the people and the place is evident in the books. But that would be destroyed, I am certain, by publicity about the publication of these books, which reveal the corruption of, by the American. And I don't want to live with that. I don't need that. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. 
so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Off Air with Jane and Fee and we're talking to the crime novelist Donna Leon. Now, she was in Iran finishing a PhD on Jane Austen when the revolution broke out. We asked her why she'd gone to Iran. I was in Iran because I I needed a job and I saw an ad for a a teaching job in Iran. I didn't know where Iran was. I was 20-something years old. And so I, I applied for the job and I took the job teaching Iranian helicopter pilots English, basic English. For I did it for four. No, I did it for about six months, and then I got myself promoted to a game that allowed me to do what I really was there to do, which was to play tennis. So I played tennis <laughs> for about six hours a day for three years. Jane, are you keeping up with this? Um, just about. We <laughs> yeah. still haven't got to the title of the PhD, Donna, which oh, is okay. important. The title of the PhD was "The Changing Moral Order in the Universe of Jane Austen's Novels," because I had been at the University of Massachusetts and done everything except finish my dissertation. So off I went to Iran with a cartload of books, and because there was no internet, there was no none of that, and I assiduously worked on my my dissertation while I was there, and I had a rough draft. And when we were evacuated in the middle of martial law. I put it in a trunk and I made it. I was smart, so I made a copy and put it in another trunk. Ha, ha, ha. I dealt with them, wouldn't I? Yes. And when the trunks, after six months, finally got to my home with everything intact, except any piece of paper, they had confiscated all the books and all of the, all of the, the manuscript, the, the rough draft. <clears throat> and I was confronted with, the, with the, the choice between continuing to be um, a vagrant, uh, sort of an academic mercenary, or going back to graduate school, I I couldn't I couldn't go back to graduate school. It just seemed so ridiculous. So I went. I think I went to China then for a year. And so at that age, what did you think that the rest of your life was going to be like? I w- I was very very lucky in that I had parents who, in a sense, were socially irresponsible. They did not teach me. They did not teach my brother ambition. They just said, have a nice life, have a lot of fun, study something that you like, get a job, have a decent life, bye-bye. And I didn't want to become the boss or the professor or the director or the anything. I just wanted to have a whole lot of fun and have a decent life. And so I had no, I didn't have goals. I didn't have commitments to, the, to intellectual this or that. I just wanted to go and 
have fun. It mm. seemed like a logical choice to me. And did your brother do the same thing? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Does he read all of your books? I send them to him. And he knows answer. how to read. Not yeah. the same thing, though, is it? Very no, he does. Answer. We he all does. know about sibling rivalry. Uh, Donna, we've been talking quite a lot on our podcast, courtesy of our listeners, uh, about the choice to be single or the struggle when you're single and you would rather be in a couple. And you said some interesting things about your own choice and your contentment at not being in a couple. Has that lasted all of your life or has that changed in different parts of your life? Well... Uh, I, sh I shared a house with a gentleman in, in Iran for three years. But that was because he was the funniest person I'd ever met in my life. And he gave me shelter. He said, well, you can, I have that down there. And uh, we lived together quite peacefully. He also spoke fluent Farsi. And so there was no fumbling about getting uh, um, adjusted to the culture. Or So he was useful. He was useful, and he, he was he was um, a dearly loved friend, but he was only a friend. But have you found throughout your life, and I don't want to pry at all, uh, Donna, but I'm interested uh, as to this notion that it's a couple's world, and that's what a lot of people say, that, you know, the acceptance of people who are genuinely just very happy to be single is still something that the wider world struggles with a bit. Well, I don't. I don't see the reason for struggle. But remember, in Italy, remember there are about three hundred women murdered almost always every year by their companion, their ex, ex fidanzato, ex marito, or their something, to, or their current companion, and and this these are only the ones that are accused. I, I'm not sure that couplehood by by definition is a desirable goal. Well, not for everybody. I think, it, I think it can be, but it depends on the person. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, can I ask about why... I mean, this is British exceptionalism at its finest, but why didn't you write a book about a British detective, John? <laughs> um, you could... I mean, I can picture, because uh, Venice is all very well, but what about Tewkesbury? Would you want to take him home um, to dinner? Yeah, well, I suppose... Um, I, you know, come on. It wouldn't have been impossible, would it? But you picked on an Italian never, No, but I never lived in England. I don't know anything about England. I well, get it all wrong. OK, but you, I think, you're, as I understand it, your heritage is Irish, German and Spanish. Mm -hmm. So you had no particular affinity to Italy. Yeah, but I had lived in Italy. I had lived in Venice for about 25 years when I wrote the books. So, oh, OK. Uh, yeah, it's it was the only, it's, And it remains the only place I've ever lived where I, can really, I could really live because I, I spoke the language very well. And I had lots of friends in Venice. And I still have lots of friends in Venice. So it's really the only place I've ever, I've ever felt comfortable living. Switzerland is fine. Switzerland is fine. Yeah. You should put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be delighted down at the Swiss Tourist Board. Uh, just before you go, we've only got a minute or so left. Uh, one of the joys of your books is your description of food. Mm -hmm. And Brunetti does go home for lunch quite a lot, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, it that. is. It is. It, it's one of the hugely kind of warming aspects uh -huh. of the books to me. Uh, can you just tell us your favourite Italian dish to end on? It usually depends upon the season, but I'm always a sucker for risotto di zucca. Risotto, risotto. with pumpkin. Yes. With it's, pumpkin, okay. With pumpkin, it's, it's, it's bliss. And is that a fried pumpkin or is the pumpkin the same kind of consistency? Chopped up uh, in dice-sized dice pieces and then cooked for a long time with lots of olive oil yeah. and an onion. And then 
on top of the pasta. Or, or that's the pasta. Or in the risotto when you stir it a lot. Just yeah. say risotto again for me. I like risotto. It. That's better. Yeah, oh. lovely. Risotto. Uh, oh, we're there, aren't we? We are, I so love risotto. It's risotto, a, as we call it here. Yeah, rice. <laughs> that was Donna Leon. And So Shall You Reap is out tomorrow. And on tomorrow's radio show, and in fact on our fair, we're going to talk about a book called Unscripted, which is about an extraordinarily seamy Hollywood business saga. Ooh. I know. Yes, there's a lot, a great deal of semi-smut that we can't really get to. But I'll do my best. Do you ever wish that you had been born into an incredibly rich dynasty? Um, do I? That's a very good question. But I think no is the answer, because I'm here to tell you, Fee, that I think it can bring a certain amount of trouble. Nothing gets past you. You're a very, very perceptive lady. <laughs> a remarkably lady. astute. <laughs> Do you? No. I think it's one of those just very, very odd things that, you know, people yearn for enormous wealth and power mm. because the stories told about wealth and power are just shit. Yes. Yeah, well, it does. I mean, power doesn't just corrupt. It makes you deeply unhappy. Yep. And um, and if money's in the mix as well, that can become extraordinarily toxic, yeah, and as we'll discover tomorrow. The very kind of wise people who become very wealthy and powerful, they give their money away. away. Yes, give it away. So it just seems to be a false dawn. Yeah, absolutely. You're better off with having enough, but not too much. Yeah. I mean, of course, that's easy for me. You know, at the moment, the thought of not having enough is really depressing. And I think there are plenty of people around at the moment who would like a bit more. Would certainly like a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we know that. Right. So we're going to toddle off and do things for the betterment of the womankind. Well, not really. Not, I'm going to the theatre tonight. Oh, OK. So um, you'll get my full review, which my theatrical reviews, as you know, well worth hearing. So there'll be another one uh, tomorrow. And then I'm bettering women on Excellent. Thursday night. I'm going to go and talk about how to collaborate better with men. Shuffling papers. Okay. Reporting back on that. Perhaps I should actually attend your evening. No, I don't think so. I don't want you there. Go away. You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live, uh, then you can Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.